0: So, good evening. My name is Gina Sharp, for those of you whom I've not met. And it's a pleasure to be here again. So, our apologies for making most of you walk up 10 flights. I guess you didn't know that we were also going to host you for your exercise for the week. things happen in some ways it's good just to remind us that nothing stays the same right everything changes so even your expectation that you will be hoisted up by a motor can change things break things don't stay the same they don't cooperate the first noble truth of the Buddha. So as you know, those of you who've been here before, our, um, our format is that we sit uh, in meditation and... Maité, have you practiced before? You have, okay. Um, and then we do a little bit of stretching or just standing just to uh, relax the body. And then we, we discuss what might be on your mind about the Dharma, okay? It might be helpful when you start to sit to review your intention. Why are you here? What brings you to your cushion or your chair or your bench? And what have you brought with you as a mood of the mind? What is the mind colored by? By wanting, by aversion, sadness, grief, joy, love, dullness, excitement, expectation, what's happening in the mind and in the heart. And pay attention to the body. We're embodied beings and yet much of the time we bypass all of the messages that are given to us by the body and we forget to check to see how we're supporting the body or not. And have we established a posture That is an appropriate template for our meditation practice. That is alert and noble, dignified, yet relaxed and at ease. Just as the mind can be alert, dignified, erect, and yet at ease. Paying attention to the object, the breath, and allowing that concentrated, focused, one-pointed attention to bring some concentration and tranquility to the mind. And yet paying attention, first in the background to what is arising, that doesn't pull the mind or become predominant in the consciousness. Knowing instead hearing or thinking or whatever the sensations are in the body, and yet allowing the breath to be the main object, the primary object, the anchor to which the attention returns again and again and again. And being acutely aware of all of the senses of the body and whatever impinges on those senses from time to time pulling the attention so that although the mind is focused and tranquil, it is also fully aware of phenomena and experiences arising, abiding for a while and passing away. Allowing all of these experiences with some dispassion and complete awareness, complete mindfulness. No judgment, analysis, or commentary in the mind. Just the wide, open awareness that knows the primary object, the breath. knows what is arriving, arising and passing away in the background, and also knows the objects that come to pull the attention, become predominant in the experience. So is there anyone who doesn't know how to do walking meditation? Okay. So what I'd like to do is to invite the people who are in the back to move a little bit forward so we can take a few uh, rows, as many rows as possible out from the back to give some, um, just a moment, to give some... Um, and just notice, notice the notice the impulse to want to get up immediately just and allow allow it to pass through um, so that we can have a walking break in silence and If you don't want to do walking meditation, it's perfectly fine to do standing meditation, but just a way to stretch the body That tonight is the second debate of the presidential uh, campaign, election campaign. So, I'll try not to go over time tonight. So, what we do these Tuesday evenings is uh, do some inquiry, and I like to call it inquiry rather than. Can you, everybody, hear me? Is is the back? Is it okay in the back? Uh, I like to do inquiry rather than um, questions and answers because sometimes the questions carry their own answers. And so we can, as Rilke says, love the question and see what's behind it rather than trying to come to some kind of answer. So I'm very happy to uh, entertain whatever is on your mind. If there are questions about the practice, or questions about the Dharma uh, I'm really happy to to entertain them and let's just wait for a few minutes because there are people coming from the other room.
1: Oh joy. Um, The Buddha speaks of dukkha or suffering I haven't thought of this in a long time but as um, pain, grief, despair and I was about to say, I'm embarrassed to say, but, well, I'm a long-time practitioner, and my pain, grief, and despair at this moment does not have to do with anything so magnificent as death. It has to do with the ending of a relationship, and it is painful. And now my body's in pain, and I'm feeling the dukkha of the aging body trying to get away from the despair of the ending of this relationship by going dancing on Saturday night and having a temporary uplifting of the dukkha, but not realizing that this body isn't 20 anymore. <laughs> and in any case, that smile was covering the dukkha. The pain, grief, and despair of the ending of a very, very dear an important relationship, even if that relationship is considered by all, probably including myself, to be toxic. And there's a big, the question I suppose is, there's a big part of me, the intellectual me, the Western me, that thinks, (laughs) you, you know this is wrong for you, this relationship, this is toxic, it is suffering itself. Why would you want to go toward this? Why would you yearn for this? Um, and yet the matter is I am grieving for it, as, uh, mourning it as though a part of well, as though a part of me has died, as though my mommy and my daddy has been taken away from me, as though my heart has been plunged into, and it has. And, and I fight this and I know that that's aversion And yet the knowing that that is a virgin is not stopping any of this. So I wonder if you can please help me with the dukkha that I'm undergoing right now. Thank you.
0: What would you like me to do? Well, Seriously.
1: I wish you could take it away, but ah. that's, <laughs> I was kind of. But that's we, not going to happen. Right. So no. I wish what I would like you to do, honestly, um, is to offer me some very basic tools. Remind me, please. I've been doing other sorts of practices recently, perhaps Tibetan. I recently had the great pleasure of seeing Sharon Salzberg again and for the first time doing Meta for the first time in a long time. Did that help? Yes, a little. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so what do you think uh, would help?
1: I don't know because I can't really sit either on my own or in a group. My mind was all over the place. It could not go there. So I ended up doing metta for everyone in the room because Mm -hmm. that's all I could do. I could not focus on the breath because the breath became thoughts about this person. Okay.
0: So there are a couple of um, underlying uh, things that I see in what you're saying first is you want the dukkha to go away, right? How does dukkha disappear?
1: Well, I thought that one way the dukkha disappears, one skillful means is if you literally make skillful, apply skillful means, apply effort to not follow the thoughts toward that person, meaning distract yourself and think about something else. Mm-hmm. Or, or do something else? Has that worked? Sometimes, mm-hmm. but and you're
0: still asking the question. So clearly, it hasn't. So I'm what I'm trying to point to is that you pr- mean. First of f- all, there's a you have an agenda, and the agenda is I don't want it to hurt, right? I don't want to be in this pain. Wait, I don't want to be in this pain. And second, that there is um, an idea that. Um, if I could distract myself by dancing or doing this or doing that or doing metta or doing all of these other activities, that maybe that would take the sting or the pain away from or the dukkha, as you're describing it, from the situation. But I know you've been practicing for a while, so that's why I'm asking you these questions. Wait. Uh, so the So the first thing is, I know you know the four noble truths. What are the four noble truths?
1: The first one is there is suffering mm. in this existence. Too bad. That's it. Sorry. I, I was just saying. Too bad, folks. That's it. No, that's not the attitude with which the Buddha said it. I was being kind of. Fun- I was being kind of funny, but that's just it. We've we've been. Born into an existence where suffering is part of the deal. It's part right. of the package.
0: Okay. okay. What's the second
1: truth? Second one is. Uh, oh, you're tricky. <laughs> the, sec- the second one, if I recall, is that um, that dukkha or suffering arises from faulty desire. And well, uh, I suppose that faulty desire could be. Uh, the desire for dukkha to go away just by snapping your fingers or something.
0: Well, the the formulation I prefer is the cause of dukkha is a clinging mind. Right? And what the Buddha said about the first noble truth is that it should be understood. Dukkha should be understood. And the second, what he said about the second truth is that the cause of dukkha should be abandoned. And then what he said in the Third Noble Truth, so I'll help you out, the Third Noble Truth is that suffering can be released or it can, it can release or it can end or cease, whichever formulation you like, and that that should be realized. And then the fourth is that there is a path to the release or the cessation of uh, dukkha and that should be cultivated or developed. So, yes, he said, dukkha is pain, lamentation, grief, and despair, that we lose what we want, we lose people we love, people we love lose us, that we get what we don't want, we don't get what we want, that there are so many ways that um, dukkha appears or stress or unsatisfactoriness, however you want to translate it. So that's the first truth. And the second truth is that the mind clings, and because the mind clings, it's not it's not because the relationship ends that there's dukkha. But the reason there's dukkha is that the mind clings to the idea that it should be some other way. Right, whatever the story is, is the mind is clinging to some idea that life should be other than this. And so so it's not about what actually happens but our relationship to what happens that causes dukkha. So when you ask me to offer something, that's what I can offer. So if you're, if you're trying Give to Give me pra- what
1: can you offer.
0: If you're offer? trying to practice, and what's happening is the story about the relationship and the ending of the relationship and what you want from the relationship and what you don't want from the relationship, and all of those stories are arising the practice that's offered is not to move to another practice because it's painful to have those thoughts, but to actually be aware of what's arising in the body and mind. So what's arising in that moment is the story and the relationship to the story and the craving and the clinging in relationship to that story and the dukkha that arises from that craving and clinging. So what's offered is not so much Okay, so here's another practice that you can go to and kind of mask that, but actually to move into what's happening here. And what's happening here is there's dukkha and the cause of dukkha. So the first two truths. And so the, the, the idea is not so much to move away, but to actually see it so that you can understand dukkha and you can abandon the cause of dukkha.
1: May I ask? Yeah. Yeah. And well,
0: then we need to move
1: on. Sure. Yeah. Um, because it's not, alwe- it's not just the story, there is also the felt, the visceral bodily pain and sensations. Excellent. And my very first spiritual teacher from Dharamsala told us all to, quote, vomit out your tears. And that's scary for me, but I have allowed myself when necessary and in the appropriate place, like my home, not outside, to sob deeply. And then there's a sense, a sensation, however, that is transitory. So none of, I, I've tried all of these skillful means, I think, of understanding dukkha, of feeling it in the moment. of.
0: And you, want it, 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 you still want it to go away. Sure. Well, be with the feeling of wanting it to go away. Sorry? Be with the feeling of wanting it to go away. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I'll try not to cry. Sorry?
2: I'll try not to cry. I'll make this story really short. I made a really foolish. Decision today. And um, I made a decision to trust somebody. And um, I shouldn't have, the signs were there. I just you put simply, your. The signs were there, and put, I put just. It a little closer. I, I just choose to ignore it. Yes. I choose to be kind, compassionate, and help somebody. Mm -hmm. and ignored my professor's
3: instructions.
2: (sighs) And now it affected a lot of people. I made the right call about this. I made the right call about this. I did the right thing. But, I feel wrong about it. But you're... I feel wrong about it. Worried. Not bad. Worried. You feel bad about it. I feel about wrong it. about it. You feel wrong about it. And um, I'm having a hard time accepting my decision to do the right thing. Because it caused a lot of people a lot of suffering, probably.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. How do I accept this?
0: How do you accept? My decision. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So first of all, It feels to me as if there is a, um, just as with Jennifer's question, to and and this is not limited to the two of you. It's probably, you know, a universal thing, right? That we we don't want the pain of of being alive.
2: I'm fine with the
0: pain. No, I no, no. accepted it. I know. It's, it's I know. fine. Wait, wait. And and it's almost, it, we almost always have a, a secret agenda. That and, I, and when I say secret, I don't mean we have a secret which we're hiding from everybody else. It's that the agenda is hiding itself from us. That um, if we do the right thing, if we do this, if we do that, if we, you know, and Jennifer was talking about ending a relationship that f- feels like it should have ended, and yet there's a lot of Um, you know, grief that's associated with that. And similarly, you're talking about making a decision that you know is the right decision, and yet there's grief associated with that. And somehow, you know, that often comes with this secret agenda that kind of hides itself from us, that if we do these right things, that it shouldn't entail any pain or any grief or any um, despair, and yet it's part of the deal. Right, and so the question is not so much whether or not it's okay for the pain or the grief or the despair or the lamentation to arise, but how we relate to it. Right, and it is, it is
2: fun when it comes to me feeling the pain because I can deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's completely okay. I've gone through, trust me, tons of things. But I just don't feel right about causing other people pain. That was completely unnecessary. Could it have been avoided? It could have been if I made the right call. If I listened to the signs, the warning signs were there. Mm -hmm. I should have listened to Professor's instructions. So you made a mistake? I made a mistake. Is that okay? It's okay to make a mistake. However, Mm -hmm. it's not okay to fall into a trap. So what would you what
0: would you like to have happen?
2: I should have avoided this particular individual, and I saw the signs. I but you simply didn't chose
0: to be arrogant. But you didn't. And to ignore. But you didn't. Right? So so here you are now. And the question is, how can you relate to? A, what you did and B, what the impact is on yourself and other people and what's the um, what's a way of working with whatever it is you're feeling about it rather than thinking that uh, it's fine to to learn from your mistakes right if you think it was a mistake because obviously uh, there you know there are two ways of looking at these things one is that I could have, I could wait, have let me finish. The, there are no mistakes, right? So, you made a you made a decision, you made a call, and you made it maybe out of ignorance. You made it out of whatever the the conditions were. So, can you live with that now? And can you learn from it, rather than? I can only live
2: with that if I can learn from it and not repeat the same mistake twice. Sorry. If I can learn from it, and I, and so I don't make this mistake twice
0: well it's possible that you won't and it's possible that you will seriously and so the so so it's it's not so much about blaming yourself or or thinking oh i you know i did wrong and you know that doesn't really help you it doesn't help anybody learning from it is different than self-flagellation about it
2: I am trying to learn from it. Great. I didn't feel right about it. That's Great. the reason why I reached out and contacted my professor, who corrected my mistake. Mm-hmm. But it was done in a such way that it hurt a lot of so people. So, h- how would you like to work with it in practice? I think a certain amount of acceptance would be nice. Mm-hmm. 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 So, so saying, guess okay. what? I'm not the smartest person in the world. Sometimes. Yeah. Great. And it's okay? Great. Great. And second, just accepting things not being perfect. Great. That's excellent. I'm I'm so driven on being perfect all the time. Beautiful. That sometimes I forget that I'm human. Beautiful. And it's okay. Beautiful.
0: So if all if all of that comes as a realization from what happened, then all is not lost.
2: And I'm also understanding that my own arrogance caused me to make a mistake to begin with. Now we're coming into self-flagellation again. No, no, no. it actually exactly what it is. Okay. I thought that I'm too smart and that I can be benef- benefactor to this individual mm-hmm. and kind of like share my knowledge, like how smart I am, how good I am. and Okay. So Coming from that point of view, and that should never occur, because there are a lot of people who are intelligent, and okay. some of them are so smarter than to me. Move on. and that's okay, too. Yeah,
0: good. Thank you.
4: Would you say something about uh, compassion, how to develop, uh, how compassion is developed, how one may?
0: How compassion is developed.
4: How one may develop compassion for themselves and for others.
0: Sure. Can you give me a context, Bill? The reason you asked the question.
4: Well, I think a lot of people have difficulty getting past being judgmental of themselves and of others. And uh, to the degree that they can move through that. Yeah. uh,
0: yeah, so so she was talking a little bit about acceptance, which is a which is a first, the wonderful way of um, starting out with compassion. So the acceptance of one's own flaws, one's own imperfection, which you were talking about, right, um, is the is really the first step towards compassion. And then what we were talking about with Jennifer, which is that the first noble truth you know when we're suffering we tend to think that it's just us right and it's and it's us because we've done something wrong or because we're wrong or because we're inadequate or because you know some some somehow we didn't see it as as she's talking about we didn't see the right thing and so you know we could have done better we should have done better and all of those stories and Compassion is kind of, a, it's kind of a second step because first we need to understand the suffering. And first we need to understand the suffering not as a personal thing, but as a, but as a universal thing. And I think that that's what the Buddha meant when he talked about suffering or dukkha needing to be understood. Because the, because the minute we get into the place of this is my suffering, or this is, this is a suffering that shouldn't be here, or I shouldn't be suffering, or I've done something wrong and that's why I'm suffering, that we get so caught by that story that what then begins to happen is we lose any kind of opportunity to understand the suffering, which is why I was asking about, you know, uh, what do you understand from what happened Rather than how am I going to um, how am I going to accept it? Because in that question, I'm hearing not just the acceptance of it, which would be perfectly fine, but the acceptance of my being wrong. So, so there's a so there's a play happening between the personal and the universal, and the understanding that we're all in this together, that mistakes get made, people get hurt. Now. <coughs> That doesn't mean that we're indifferent. It doesn't mean we're cold. It doesn't mean that we're um, unfeeling or unlearning about um, what we do that causes the suffering of others. But what it does mean is that we um, we begin to understand the usness of life rather than the meanness of life. And then compassion can dawn from that when we really understand it's not my pain, but it's the pain. Uh, uh, Pir Vilyat Khan, who's a Sufi teacher, says, overcome any bitterness that may come to you because of the uh, allocation of of the pain that you have been given in your life. That we all have a certain... um, a certain... Uh, percentage of the pain or a certain fraction of the pain that is the pain of being alive and once we understand that then then compassion starts to dawn because when we meet uh, when the heart of kindness meets suffering and with some equanimity that understands the universality of, of suffering then compassion can arise from that so it's not so much that we're making ourselves become compassionate or we're you know we're we're forcing our, our 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 hearts and minds into a compassionate stance as that we're really endeavoring to understand as the buddha asked us to do this first noble truth of if you look around you'll see that we're all in this tight spot together and from that from that understanding we begin to get compassion for ourselves as well as the compassion for all of the other beings with whom we share this planet because we're not disconnected. So compassion becomes a compassion for the pain rather than compassion for my pain, for this small body that we think may be um, inordinately wrong or inordinately faulty. We begin to see that we're suffering not because there is fault or because we're not doing something right, but because it's part of the deal. So, thank you for the question. Joe.
1: I, I'm a, a, a total beginner uh, for my first time at a meditation workshop. Um, I, I noticed you use the word compassion. You, I have not heard the word forgiveness used. Mm-hmm. Does that come into play
4: here? Or yeah. is there a difference?
0: So, so it, it, it's, a, it's part and parcel of it, uh, but it's slightly different. So forgiveness is the recognition, as she was saying, that, you know, that there's a recognition that she's harmed, that her decision, not that she harmed others, but that the decision that she made harmed other people. And so we were talking about the fact that there is a, there's a recognition that you can have of that without self-flagellation without thinking, I'm wrong, I shouldn't have, I could have, I should have, because it's done. So in that case, it's possible to, of course, um, feel some remorse or regret for having caused any harm to to others. And forgiving oneself and forgiving and asking forgiveness. It's possible to ask forgiveness of others that you think you might have harmed. And also to forgive others who've harmed you. So there, so the forgiveness, there's, a, there's a specific forgiveness practice that we can do. And it's a three-way forgiveness practice. It's first forgiving ourselves and then asking forgiveness for the harm we've done and then offering forgiveness for the harm that others have done to us. And again, as we're walking around in these bodies and in this life, we're impinging on each other all the time. Right? Our senses are being impinged. The decisions we make Impinge on other people the decision other people the decisions other people make impinge on us and so to be able to 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 forgive freely is a really beautiful skill that can be cultivated unfortunately in our culture it's not a it's not something that's high on our agenda right and and we know that just because we know the you know even just looking at the incarceration rates, we know that that the incarceration rates in this country, in our culture, are the highest of any country in the world. right? And there's something about that that tells us that our culture doesn't really put a lot of, um, doesn't invest much in the idea of forgiveness. And so it's a message that we get you know, subliminally as well as consciously, that, you know, somebody wronged you, you, you know, forgiveness is the last thing that you want to do. And yet, if we look at the training of our own hearts, which is what we're doing in meditation, right, we're training our own hearts, we're cultivating our own hearts in all of the qualities of the Buddha mind, of the mind of wisdom and compassion, right? Right? So, so in, in order to do that, what's the ground that has to be cultivated? What's the ground that has to be developed? It's the ground of kindness. It's the ground of compassion. And forgiveness is, is the even, you know, the, the sub-ground under which those qualities spring. Because if we're holding grudges, if we're holding tightly to harm that we've done or harm that others have done, then the heart can't open. Once we close the heart, if we close the heart to one person, the heart is closed. It's it's almost impossible to close to o- to close the heart to this one and yet open it to the other because there's a there's a quality of heart that once we close it down, it doesn't open it doesn't open easily. So thank you for asking that question. It's a really important one.
4: In this in this tradition and your name my name is Hayden. Hayden is there uh, the uh, option or the, the, the possibility of, of, of choice Could, choice freedom. and freedom in this tradition um, I say that as because I um, I've recently become aware of uh, um, ideas that uh, arguments against the notion of free will and that um, seem sort of absurd but they, they spring from some kind of deterministic um, aspects of like physics and science that basically posit that uh, things are the way they are because of antecedents sort of like the dependent causation idea. In, in uh, so
0: you're looking at cause and effect and wondering if because there because there's karma that that means that it's deterministic and there's uh, yeah. that everything is according to fate and we can't change our karma? Is that yeah, what you're which, thinking?
4: I don't really feel that's the case for mm-hmm. myself personally, but I don't know whether mm-hmm. that's... I'm just curious as to whether that's something that is, in your, in your knowledge, is something that is... is, uh, is there, there's room for freedom of choice and... and, and uh, so right
0: now, in this moment, do you feel that asking that question came out of some deterministic place, or do you think it came out of your free will?
4: I think it came out of my free will, mm-hmm. but I, I'm just sort of uh, um, interested in the, the other, you know, in exploring the other options. <laughs> uh, and uh, and even though it doesn't yeah. seem, it, it doesn't, it seems intuitively, it, it's a felt yeah. experience that we have yeah. choice, that we have, that yeah. we, sure. we were able to choose that we're agents of our own sure. you know, you know, yeah. uh, lives.
0: So so there are, two, there are two, I think part of the confusion may be that there are, two, um, there are two aspects to karma. So karma, the word karma means action. There's another aspect of it called karma vipaka, which is the effect of action, the effect of karma. So there's karma and there's the effect. So you may have heard a te- I have a feeling, though I'm not sure, that you've heard a teaching that everything, nothing is independent, that everything is dependent on causes and conditions, and that because everything is dependent on causes and conditions, uh, that we are, we are totally connected to a web of the causes and conditions that have been put down before us, so not only our own actions, but all of the actions of all of the beings that have gone before us and that we are occupying the the, the universe with now, and all of the environments and everything else, all of the causes and conditions that have been established. And when you look at, at for instance, the fact that we're all in this room together a whole lot of causes and conditions had to come together, like the elevator had to work. I bet there are people that didn't come up, right? So there were causes and conditions that happened f- from the beginning of time, really. You know, or you could look at it from the beginning of your life, or if you believe in past lives, the beginning of time from, you know, the first life that you ever had. And all of those causes and conditions moving towards this very moment, right? And in that sense, I suppose, you could conceive that as being deterministic. Although in every single moment, there were choices that were made by every single being. According to their capabilities and according to the environment and according to what the causes and conditions were that had brought them there. And then once you're here, We are now in this moment bound, having come here because we've been bound to all of those causes and conditions, including whatever we've contributed in those causes and conditions. And yet right now you had the choice of asking the question or not asking the question, right? Or maybe you felt compelled to ask the question, I don't know, by your fate, but certainly there was, a, there was a moment in which there was a choice to put your hand up or not put your hand up. And perhaps the choice that you made had to do with you know, your family background and your education and how comfortable you feel in this room because of whatever has happened to you before in your life. And yet at the same time, If we are here in the present moment, being here uh, freely in the present moment, even though all of the causes and conditions before have brought us here, we can respond appropriately to what is happening. And even though we may not be able to completely be free from all of the conditions that have been before in our lives there is a part of us that is able to see what an appropriate response is and that part of us is able to see what the appropriate response is if we are able to let go of all of the conditioned reactivity that has been conditioned in all of the reactivity that has been conditioned into us throughout all of our lives so the practice is what gives you the ability to exercise your free will while at the same time recognizing that causes and effects happen and every effect becomes a cause along with whatever your relationship is to that effect and your decisions and your choices with respect to that effect and how you will use that effect in this present moment, you can't you can't make any uh, decisions about the future, but you can make decisions right here and right now, right? So I don't know if you call that free will, or you call that determ- being deterministic. I'm I have a feeling, though, that it's not quite so polar. That there that there are nuances, and that there that the landscape is more. Um, rolling than it is just flat when it comes to making that, do you know what I mean by that? When it comes to making that decision about, you know, that if we talk about it, if we choose the language of determinism rather than free will, we're kind of in a bind, right? But if we're, if we're able to see that in this very moment there is an ability to choose an appropriate response. Our relationship to all of the, to the, to the cum- accumulated effect of all of the causes and conditions that have gone before are of one's free will rather than of a determination. Yes, we can, be, we can get automatic, right? Which is how we li- we've lived most of our lives, is being unautomatic according to all of the conditioning that we've received. But that in any moment, when we turn to the present moment and we're actually present with some dispassion for what's happening in this moment, we're able to make some decisions about that, that have to do more with um, appropriate response than they have to do with reactivity. And uh, that's what i that's how I would rather frame it is what is my relationship to what's happening now rather than, and and can I make an appropriate response to it rather than being conditionally reactive to it? And in that way, I have some choices that I can make.
4: Thank you. You're welcome. Um,
3: My name's Adrian. And my question in some ways really, I've been thinking about this for a number of months, but really responds or has been encouraged by what everyone's been asking you this evening or discussing with you. And that, um, I guess I'd say, has to do with the second noble truth and the moment or the question of whether or not the cause of suffering is only clinging mind, because if that's the case, then the discipline of the mind and being on the right path transforms or transforms the experience of that suffering.
0: I'm sorry, say that again, That last sentence again?
3: If the cause of suffering is clinging mind.
0: It's the only cause of suffering. It's the is only, right.
3: Mm-hmm. Then the noble path is part of a way of achieving freedom from that suffering and learning the discipline and um, techniques and tools to achieve that. But what about the kinds of suffering that we can change? That's not, and maybe this sounds incredibly naive, but the suffering that isn't in our mind, but is in the world. And as you said sort of earlier, it's part of the deal that there is suffering in the world. But we can actually change suffering sometimes. And I guess I don't know. I don't really know how that movement away from one's self-discipline An opening of one's own heart and transformation of one's own thoughts, how that moves into action to deal with hunger in a world that has lots of food or provides care for people who are in pain. And I'm just, I'm not quite seeing how this tradition makes that transition mm-hmm. out of the meditative self into the world. Mm.
0: That's a really important question. So thank you for it. You said your name was Adrian. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And it's a it's a question that's asked often because it's a practice that teaches us to accept things as they are, right? And sometimes and s- we don't. We shouldn't. <laughs> Sorry. And sometimes we shouldn't accept well, things but, as well, they are. It, well, but I think it—I think it has to do with language, and perhaps a kind of uh, rigidity that we, that the mind has, when it hears uh, certain uh, phrases or a certain language. I'm particularly struck by. Um, the answer that, sister, uh, that uh, Mother Teresa gave when she was asked, how have you done all of these great things that you've done? You know, what, how did you manage to help millions of orphans or hundreds of thousands of orphans or whatever the number is? And she said, I've not done any great deeds. I've just done small deeds with great love. And the reason that I like that statement and it struck me very deeply when I, when I heard it is that it points to the question that you're asking, which is, okay, so we sit in meditation and everything's really great on the cushion or on the chair, right? You know, the mind gets calm and concentrated, the mind gets gladdened, it gets liberated. Now, what? Right? So, now we get up, and there's this world out there where people are hungry when we have enough food. The greatest country in the world, you know, us, um, it, you know, is exporting arms. Is, you know, that our greatest export is arms. We incarcerate two and a half million people. All of there, there's all of this injustice that now, you know, now I've develop this great heart, what am I going to take this great heart and do when I come into this world of, this great world of suffering? So her answer about doing small deeds with great love, I suspect, comes from her, came from her ability to, she said, And she said in, in connection with that, I didn't, I didn't deal with hundreds of thousands of orphans. I saw one orphan that needed help and I helped him or I helped her. And that's what the meditative or the contemplative life allows us to do is to respond appropriately as we were saying before to what is before us. If we are filled with anger and aversion to what we see and we are so busy judging what we see, it's not possible to respond appropriately. What we're likely to do is to make matters worse. And I, being, a, being part of the generation that was in the anti-Vietnam movement, I saw that often. Where we would think we were fighting for peace. Right? What a notion. Right? It's oxymoronic. Right? So that, so that, the, so that first, we deal with this one, the heart of this one. That's, that has the same uh, impulses running through this heart as runs through every other heart, which is the, um, the, the impulse for creativity and the impulse for destruction. And first we tame this heart and we know what, and we begin to develop what needs to be developed with respect to this heart. So that when we act, we can reliably know that how we are acting is likely, not a hundred percent, but is likely to improve the situation rather than to make it worse. If we are in reactivity all the time, it's impossible to see clearly and with wisdom what is appropriate and what is needed. Sometimes action is needed. Sometimes stillness is needed. But what we can be sure of is that we act, if we act from a a heart of aversion and craving, that we are most likely to make things worse. So the practice is not teaching us to be still in the face of injustice. It's teaching us to first see that injustice clearly, to understand the causes of that injustice. Because if we're just gonna react to the superficial level of the injustice, we're probably gonna make a mess and not really get to the causes of that injustice. I worked in a prison for volunteering to teach meditation for a very long time and I saw that over and over and over again when people who had very good intentions would come in and try to make matters better and would make them worse for the inmates, very good intentions. But there wasn't any acceptance of the way things are and what's possible and what's not possible in that kind of situation so that the contemplative life is not a passive life. It's a, it's a dynamic life and I really want to, I'm so thank you for that question because I really want to talk about not only what we do when we get off the cushion, but that when we're on the cushion, we're also training the mind to be a dynamic mind. We're not training it to go to sleep, we're training it to wake up, right? But there's, a, there's an image of meditation as being something where we kind of become like flatlined in our brains. right? But that's not it. The mind is gladdened, it's concentrated, and it's liberated. And from that place, what, the, what that mind creates is reliable. If it's a mind that's asleep, and that's kind of you know a little bit blissed out, but is not being purified, then the activity of that mind is not gonna be helpful. So I, so I really appreciate the question because I think it's a, a really important one for meditators and for contemplatives. And yes, there are contemplatives that are totally happy and satisfied living in a cave, and that's fine too, because you know what? they're really contributing to the peace of the world, right? And sometimes people who are activists for peace are contributing less peace. I've um, been there, done that, right? So, um, so to really know if, if we're going to go out into the world and act to really prepare ourselves well, from the inside out, not from the outside in. Because if we do it from the outside in, we'll be acting out of a lot of delusion, a lot of ignorance. The, so seeing this is the way things are and being able to accept it first. Say, oh, okay, this is how it is, these are the rules, and sometimes we're gonna defy the rules, but a lot of the time we have to act within the rules, right? right. And to really accept it first and then go from there, we're more likely to be of great help.
3: Thank you. You're very
0: welcome. Hmm. So, thank you for your questions. So, let's just sit for a moment. come back to the understanding of uh, what we talked about in the beginning. What is your intention to be here? What moves you to practice meditation? What brings you here? What is the quality of heart? Perhaps it's pain. We've heard some questions about the pain of uh, losing a dear one or the pain of making a decision that has an impact on others that's not easy. Or compassion, forgiveness, acting, uh, whether our acts are... um, Determined, or we have free will, and how we work as as uh, contemplatives, or people who value the inner life. How we reconcile it to the um, to what we think of as the external world. And the injustice that we see, how we how we can work with that. So all of these questions are probably questions that you've had from some time in your life, situations that you've had sometime in your life. And how would you deal with any of these questions? Because our relationship to what is happening is really the key to our practice. Can we use the Four Noble Truths as the, uh, the template? What, does it, what do those Four Truths teach us that allow the heart to be released? That gives us some way of working with the pain of our own lives. So can we just think about ourselves, the pain that we carry in our own hearts, the pain that others are carrying now? And if you would like to um, enter the name of people that you know that are carrying extraordinary pain or even pain that is difficult to bear by saying their name out loud, then we can include them in our practice of loving kindness that we're about to do. So I'll give you a few moments to just say the names of those people that you would like to include, Marilyn. So we've brought these beings into the room with us. And we are all inextricably interwoven and interconnected in the net of life from which we cannot fall. And so each of these beings is is an aspect of our being. And of course we include each of, we, we include ourselves in this practice of cultivating the heart of kindness. And we Acknowledge that when we come together to practice in the way that we've practiced tonight and reflect on Dharmic principles and how they apply in our lives, that we create a field of goodness that can hold all of the pain of these beings and the pain that we may also be carrying in our own hearts. And with the fluttering of our hearts that responds to that pain, we send out wishes of kindness, first addressing them to ourselves, and then including all of these beings who are now in the room with us, wishing for their safety as well as our own. Wishing for their peace and happiness as well as our own. Wishing for their health. Or if it's not possible for their health to improve, that they are able to bear the difficulty of that. With grace. And we also wish for the ease of all of these beings and for our own. And we dedicate the goodness of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of ourselves, of all of these beings that are in this room with us and all beings everywhere without exception. Expressing gratitude for the assembly that is here and wishing for the peace of our community and its well-being. you so much for coming good night